Good morning, Cornerstone. Heart of my own heart, whatever befalls, still be my vision, O ruler of all. You know, that song is easy to sing in the good days. That song is easy to sing when everything is going well in your life. But if you've been through something, if you've been through the trials and tribulations that come with living in this fallen world, those words take on a special meaning. God, I desire to have your heart and to see things the way you see them, no matter where I find myself, no matter what I'm going through. Heart of my own heart, whatever befalls. A determination and a commitment to walk with Jesus Christ all the way through good times and in bad. We continue our study today in the book of Romans. And a couple weeks ago, we were amazed and wondering at Paul the Apostle in chapter 9. As he declared that if it were possible, he would be willing to die for his people Israel. Paul said that if it were possible, he would be willing to become the sacrifice in order to save his kinsmen, his family in the flesh. Now today we come to Romans chapter 10, where Paul has come back to a sense of sobriety, recognizing that he is not the savior, that his dying for Israel would accomplish little to nothing for them. He's come back to his senses. He's still passionate about his people, but now he looks to God for their salvation and says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is for their salvation. That they might be delivered to safety. And Paul's heart desire for Israel is the same as God's heart desire for all of humanity. That mankind would be delivered to safety. The very concept that humanity needs to be saved implies that as it stands right now, humanity is in grave danger. And what is that danger? It is the danger of being wholly consumed. The danger of being eternally injured and deformed by sin. It is the danger of moral decomposition, spiritual decay, and soul-groaning anguish where there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. My prayer for Israel is that they would be delivered to safety. Humanity needs deliverance now more than ever before. Humanity needs deliverance more than it needs food and water. Every day that goes by without salvation plunges us deeper and deeper into the bowels of eternal despair. This world and all of us who dwell here 
are in existential danger. We can pretend all we want. We may try to ignore the spiritual realities of the human condition through busyness, through strong drink. We may, we may seek to deny this reality with laughter by immersing ourselves in worldly pleasure, by pursuing our perceived purpose in life. We can ignore the reality all we want, but humanity is in grave eternal danger. And none of our imaginations can save us. We need God to deliver us from the dangers of sin. And most of the world is unaware of this need, but Israel was aware. Israel had experienced God as their deliverer time and time again. God delivered Israel from the bondage of Egypt. God delivered Israel from subjugation to Assyria. God delivered Israel from annihilation time and time again. They knew God as a deliverer and they understood him to be the God who saves. And for this reason, Paul testifies in verse two of Romans chapter 10 and says that Israel has a zeal for God. Israel has a zeal for God. To have zeal for God is to have a deep devotion and a deep sense of reverence for God. Israel has a deep devotion to God. Israel was earnest in its pursuit of God and of the will of God. They were what we would say is on fire for God. On fire for the things of God. And if salvation was based solely on devotion, all Israel would have been saved. But salvation cannot be measured by devotion. There is nothing wrong with being on fire for God, but not all fire is good fire. There are myriads of religions in the world today that are on fire for God. <laughs> Let me say that again. There are myriads of religions in the world right now that are on fire for God. Many people even today are able to recognize that something is wrong with humanity. Something is missing. And many of those people are also on a quest to find God. They're reading all sorts of books. They're taking up various spiritual practices, developing all kinds of theories and philosophies in a sincere quest. They're not pretending. It is a sincere quest to appease God. And I have no reason and we have no reason to doubt their sincerity. I have no reason and we have no right to critique their intentions. Because Israel is here as living proof that it is possible to have a zeal for God and still not find salvation. Israel is living proof of this. 
Because having devotion for God is not the same as having faith in God. Paul says that Israel had fiery devotion for God, but not, he says, not in accordance with knowledge. And this speaks directly to the quality of their relationship with the God whom they admired. They wanted to serve God, but they did not serve God in the way that he has prescribed. They yearned for a sense of unity with God, but they did not know how to befriend God. And they set out to appease God by becoming rule followers. They understood that God has standards and they devoted themselves to living up to the standards, the moral standards of God. Most of them lived very strict and very disciplined lives, even more disciplined than us today. They fasted often. They prayed the prescribed three times a day. They refused to work on the Sabbath, and, and, and regarding the Sabbath, they were so meticulous. God said, don't work on the Sabbath day. And their theologians concluded that to work is to walk anything more than five miles away from your house. If you walk more than five miles away from your house, then you have, have forsaken the Sabbath. And so as a workaround, a few days before the Sabbath day, if someone wanted to take a 30-mile journey, they would send their servants out, and every five miles, they would put down some food. Because the rule was that your house was wherever you took your food. <laughs> and they were so meticulous that they would send their servants out every five miles to put down some food so that they could walk their 30 miles and never betray the Sabbath. That's how serious they were. They were strict and disciplined. They were devoted to God. They had a zeal, a passion, a strong desire to serve. But that is not faith. That is just passion. It is possible to be passionate about God and not trust in God. Israel is in that kind of situation. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul says in verse 3, because they did not know about God's righteousness. Israel sought to establish their own righteousness. Here's the problem. And let me say this. If ever there was a descriptor of what it means to be simply religious, this has to be it. To be religious is to establish rules and practices, ceremonies and lifestyles designed to appease God. To be religious is to establish one's own righteousness. To make one's own set of rules and standards and by following through on those commitments to assume that God will be well pleased. That is religion. They made their rules and they had an agreement among themselves that this is the way we will find favor with God. They were also careful to ensure that everyone, all of them, adhered to the rules they had designed. 
And if you fail to follow the rules, at the very least you would be shamed, but at most you could be stoned. And therein lies the weakness of religion. Religion is enforced not by God, but by other men. Religion is administered by mere humans. And to be religious in the way that Israel was religious is to subject oneself to the rules and to the dictates of men and not to God. That was Israel's problem. In their zeal for God, they subjected themselves to the righteousness prescribed by other men. And Paul says they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They were reading the word of God, brothers and sisters. They were taking their cues from the writings of the prophets, but, but somehow they interpreted the writings to be the basis for a man-made, man man-led religious system. They viewed the Bible as a rule book and not as a love letter from God. They understood the teachings of the prophets as guidelines to live by and not as the precious promise of God to deliver them from danger. The Bible was a book in their view that showed the way for them to save themselves from the wrath of God. And by their religion, they set out to save themselves. But God takes no pleasure in the person who seeks to save himself by following his own devices. God has made a way for all of humanity to be saved. And Paul informs us in verse four that Christ is the end for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus Christ, therefore, is God's only way, is God's only means by which humanity can be saved. And at this point, especially in our culture today, someone will ask the question, why would God only make one way to salvation? That seems rather myopic, doesn't it? That seems rather narrow-minded of God, that God would only make one way to salvation. Why would God only make one way and not two and not three or not four? Why would God not cater to the preferences of humanity and allow them to choose the God they wanted? Why would God only make one way? To this question, I have to reply that God only made one way to salvation because God himself is only one person. God only made one way to salvation because God only has one son who could be the sacrifice for humanity. There is only one God. And God has only one son. Now, if God had two sons, maybe God would have made two ways for salvation. But God is simple. God is simple. 
God is one. And one is the only whole number of all numbers. And God is whole. God is one. And God desires to make us whole, to make us all one. And therefore God calls all of us to one central person, not to two, not to three, not to four. God's desire for us is that we will all become one. And as we all gather together at the rallying call of Jesus Christ, we find that blessed unity and we find oneness in him. We find this righteousness that immunizes us, this righteousness that insulates us from the dangers that exist not only in this world, but the danger of sin that exists within our own hearts. Jesus Christ is righteousness to all those who believe in him. Paul continues then in verse 5. Moses writes of the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who performs them will live by them. And to say that another way, the person who scrupulously adheres to the moral code as a means of righteousness depends on that law to save them. But as we learned much earlier in the book of Romans, the law does not and the law cannot save. The law does not and the law cannot pardon my sins. That's not what the law was designed to do. But the law specializes only in pointing out and magnifying and punishing my sin. The law offers no reprieve to mankind. The law shows no mercy and the law accepts no apologies. It says what it says and it enforces its own precepts. And Moses says that the person who seeks to please God through strict adherence to the laws of God hopes to find life through the law. But life does not come by the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul explains in verse six, the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Do not say in your heart, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But these are the two questions that religion seeks to ask and to answer. Who is going to heaven? And who is going to hell? And then religion asserts that only those who follow God's written laws, only those who follow man's code of conduct will go to heaven and all others will go to hell. But Paul says this is a question that we should not ask. Paul explains that these questions should be off limits to the people of God. 
We are not authorized to make such determinations. We cannot go by what we see of a person. We cannot go by what we think of a person because we cannot see into any man's heart. The principle of faith is that faith is not discernible with the naked eye. Only God can see faith. Only God knows who has faith and who does not. And righteousness is the byproduct of faith in Jesus Christ and nothing more. That's what faith asserts. Paul says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Simply put, or to put it another way, everyone has access to the same word of faith. Anyone can be saved regardless of what they are doing or how they may be living. Stop for a moment and take it in. I'll say it again. Anyone can be saved regardless of what they're doing and of how they may be living. Hmm. Because only God knows. Only the one who searches the hearts of every person can possibly know who has faith in Jesus Christ and who does not. And only religion would try to decipher the one from the other because, because religion purports to know exactly what a true child of God looks like. Hmm. Only religion would try to pass final judgment. But the judgment of religion is based solely upon what it sees through its perverted lens. And yes, you already know this, even the eyes of the elect of God in this world can be just as perverted as the eyes of the unbeliever. Paul the Apostle says, we know in part, but we prophesy in part. We see as through a glass darkly. So I see you sitting at the bar drinking and, and, and carousing with women. And I make the determination in my mind that you're on your way to the abyss that you are eternally damned if you don't change your ways. But I don't know that. And I can't say that based upon what I'm seeing with my eyes. Only God knows who has true faith. Only religion would assert to know that. Hmm. We see only in part and we humans, we prophesy only in part. But no man can see beyond the veil. And no man has the power to open the seal of the Lamb's Book of Life to know who will be saved and who will not be saved. Only one man, Jesus Christ, holds that kind of power. And as Paul says, for me or for you to inquire as to the eternal fate of another person's soul is to remove Jesus Christ from that place of power and to unlawfully assert our claims over the mystery of godliness. The truth be told, it is a mystery that even we ourselves cannot fully comprehend. And yet in our religion, we have the audacity 
to make eternal determinations over the soul of another man. It can't be done. And so now Paul turns the corner. And Paul provides us here this very simple formula for what is required of us if we are to be called righteous by God. He puts it very simply in verse 9. He says this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. And it is very tempting at this point. <laughs> I know it is because it's tempting for me. It is very tempting at this point for the religious person to start throwing out caveats and disclaimers. It is very tempting at this point to hurriedly run over to the book of James to clarify that, that faith without works is dead. For some reason, we can't bear to just read that as it is. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Yeah, yeah, but, but that, that's not all, Calvin. That, that there's more to it. Faith without work. No. Let's just deal with what Paul is saying. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. You will be saved. It is very tempting for us to try to force the claim that living right should be the byproduct of faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're not living right, maybe you just don't have faith. And while there's certainly some truth to that, I want us to stop this morning just for a second and ask ourselves some searching questions. Why am I so determined to enforce the law on another person when I already know that adherence to the law cannot save them? What is up with me? Why am I so determined to close the door of salvation to other people all the while knowing that even I myself am not measuring up to the laws of God? What is up with me? Why do I so fervently demand righteous living from others? And why do I require that other men prove their righteousness to me? Final question, final question. These are just searching questions for you to consider and ponder in your choir. How do I benefit from excluding another person from eternal life. What is the benefit that you're getting from excluding anyone else from eternal life? Why do you feel the need? Those are searching questions. And if you are one of those people who think it your duty to examine the actions of others and make eternal judgments over another person's soul, Maybe you should spend more time brooding over your own eternal prospects. Because Jesus Christ has declared that by your own words you will be justified and by your own words you will be condemned. Hmm. And if you say that that woman can't make it to heaven because she's watching porn 10 times a day, 
then surely you cannot make it to heaven watching porn one time a year. If he cannot make it into heaven abusing drugs, then surely you cannot make it into heaven consuming prescription medications that makes your pain go away. Judge not that you be not judged. And do not try to peer into another person's heart. Her heart is beyond your ability to know. Hmm. And Paul says that it is with the heart, verse 10, it is with the heart that a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And it is with the mouth that a person confesses, resulting in salvation. Believe with the heart, confess with your mouth. That is the formula for salvation. You probably noticed something though. You probably noticed in this formula that Paul never mentions the concept of repentance. So what should we do with that? Paul says, just believe and confess and you will be saved. Why does Paul not mention repentance? Isn't that a part of the salvific plan of God? Well, Paul doesn't mention repentance for one reason. Because the context of his words here is really about the people of Israel. That's how he started the conversation. He's talking about Israel. The people of Israel who were already being ever so meticulous to follow the whole law. That's who he's talking about in these verses. This principle of faith applies to all of us. But the people of Israel, with a zeal for God, were already living and doing the standard as best they could. The people of Israel were no doubt already brewing over their least little mistakes and missteps. That was their malady, that was their problem. Their overindulgences in adherence to the law as it related to their actions and their inactions. They were already aware that they needed to change. And that's what it means to repent, brothers and sisters. To repent means to change your mind. To change your mind. To turn from your own way of living and of doing life and to accept God's plan for living in this world. That's what it means to repent. To make the determination that I am going in the wrong direction and to simply turn around. Israel had already accepted God's plan as it related to their actions. They already understood the law. Their problem was not so much with their actions as it was with their system of belief. They believed that their righteous actions would save them instead of believing in the free grace of God. That's why Paul doesn't mention repentance. But the question becomes this. This is one of my what-if moments. Imagine for a moment that there is a person in some faraway land who only has access to the book of Romans and no other book of the Bible. And that person reads Paul's words here that if she just believes in her heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and confesses with her mouth that God raised Jesus from the dead, she will be saved. What is this, if this is the only book that she has? 
this were the only book of the Bible that she ever received, would that person ever know that repentance was also necessary for salvation? That sound like a stretch? No, that's not a stretch at all. Professors went over to Africa from Moody Bible Institute. I think it was maybe 2012 or 2013. A group of professors went to, to Africa to train the pastors in the villages how to, how to preach the gospel, how to do ministry. And to their amazement, they, they met pastors who rode from village to village on bicycles. They only had bicycles. And they would go from village to village preaching the gospel but most of them only had a few pages of a book of the Bible. And they would travel around preaching from these same few pages week after, that's the only thing they had. So it's not a stretch. They didn't have access to the whole Bible. What if there was a person who only had the book of Romans? Would that person ever realize that they needed to repent, that they needed to change? Yes, they would know. They would know they needed to repent because of Romans chapter two, verses four and five, where Paul teaches us that God's plan for salvation definitely includes the need for repentance. He writes this, or do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness, his restraint and his patience, not realizing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness, because of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of the wrath of God and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You need to repent, Paul says in Romans chapter 2. You need to change. Well, if I just come to Jesus and confess my, my faults and, uh, and confess Jesus as Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, I don't need to change. I can stay as I am. Jesus said, come as you are. Jesus never said, Jesus never said, come as you are. He expects you to come as you are, but he expects you to leave his presence changed. That's the gospel. Repent, change your mind. God's kindness that he has shown us in his son, Jesus Christ, Paul says here, that kindness is designed to lead you to change. But we're saved by faith. Change has nothing to that, that's not true. Abraham came to God and all Abraham had was faith, but his name was Abram. When he came to God with his faith, God changed him. You will no longer be called Abraham, you will be called Abram, you will be called Abraham. He changed Abraham. Change is a part of the salvation plan. To be set free of our sin, of our inhibitions, of our fears, this is a part of the plan of God for us. However, however, the caveat here, if I come to Jesus, with my hurts and my habits and my hangups, and I give my life to Jesus Christ, I may not change today. I may not change tomorrow. And the truth of the matter is that my change is not according to my own efforts. God has to change me. This is the difference between religion 
and true salvation. To be able to confess, I am going in the wrong direction, I'm going to turn around, but I don't have the power to walk forward. I can only say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, I want to change. All of the rest of the work belongs to the Holy Spirit. And you can practice doing right all you want, it's not going to draw you any closer to God. That's the mistake that Israel made. Your doing right is not the prerequisite for salvation. Only your faith is. But your, 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 your works, your good works are a byproduct of your faith. So that we don't live right in order to get to heaven. No, no. Living right doesn't get you to heaven. Believing in Jesus Christ alone gets you to heaven. Living right is merely a byproduct of receiving Jesus Christ into your life. I hope, I, hope, I hope I make that clear. I hope that's clear. So many people are practicing doing right and so afraid of God. Well, I'm, I'm going to go to hell in my sins if I don't change it. Well, if you believe on Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about that. And you're not trying to do right because you're afraid of going into the abyss. You want to do right and you want to live right because you desire to be like Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is in you. And the more you rest in that truth, the more you believe in that truth, the more your life becomes righteous on the outside so that others can see what God is doing on the inside. So when you go to evangelize, you don't have to tell people, you need to stop that drinking. You need to stop that sleeping around. And that's not the message. The message is simply, if you believe Jesus Christ is Lord, if you confess with your mouth that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. If you stand there in front of me and say, I believe, and you make the confession, I have no right to conclude. If you turn around right after you make the confession, grab a bottle of liquor, I have no right to conclude that you were insincere. I have no way of knowing that. Judge not. When you read Galatians and Ephesians and all the different books that Paul wrote, you find that Paul spends the majority of the time trying to explain to the people that they, they shouldn't be committing this sin or that sin. They were saints. He was calling them saints of God, sons and daughters of God. Oh, stop sleeping with your mother's uh, wife. Don't do your father's wife. Don't do that. that. That's not good. Stop lying. You shouldn't do that. that. But you called them saints. Yeah, they're saints, Paul is saying. They believe with their hearts. They confessed with their mouth. Now they're being sanctified. I can't tell who's being sanctified and who's not being sanctified. I have no right to judge. And Paul says that if I try to make the determination of who's going into the abyss and who's going to heaven, I am dethroning Christ because that's not my right and that's not my responsibility. So this is what it means to be saved simply, to believe to believe on Jesus Christ. It sounds so simple that we almost are afraid to say it. Many preachers are afraid to explain it in that way because they say to themselves, if I tell everybody that grace is free, then they're all gonna start sinning and doing whatever they wanna do. Well, if that happens, maybe they were never saved to begin with. 
It's not my responsibility. It's my responsibility to tell you the good news. And the good news is that no matter where you find yourself right now on your moral compass, if you believe and if you have confessed, you shall be saved. And the work of the Holy Spirit will do the rest in you. Only religion will try to control or manipulate or shame you into living a life that is a lie. I can pretend all I want that I don't have this desire or this urge that doesn't make it go away. Too many believers in the church of Jesus Christ today are pretending to be righteous. And that is merely religion that God does not respect. In fact, God rejects it, just as he did the people of Israel. A lot to think about in that text. A lot to ponder. I hope you ponder it over this week. Let's pray. Father God, Paul the Apostle rightly said that great is the mystery of godliness. Such a mystery how you take wretched, broken people like ourselves and make something beautiful out of our ashes. Such a mystery, Lord God, how you can love the unlovely, the unlovable. Such a mystery how you can call us righteous when we know by what we see that in fact we are not. I thank you for this precious way that you have made through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And we desire to be like Jesus. And we commit not to change ourselves through religious, religious practices, but we commit to yield to the Holy Spirit and allow you to incrementally in your time transform us by the renewing of our minds in the washing of the word of God. In Jesus' name.